0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Ruerkraut.
1: And I'm Sophia Simonello. We are so excited today to be joined by Bo Borders and David Wyman, two members of the Oscar nominated sound team for Greyhound on Apple TV. Bo Borders is both a sound engineer and a race car driver who worked as the re recording mixer on Greyhound. His film career began in the 90s at George Lucas' famed Skywalker Ranch. Since then, he has worked on many films including Titanic, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Additionally, he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound Mixing in 2014 for Lone Survivor.
0: And David Wyman worked as the sound mixer on Greyhound. His interest in sound began at the young age of 14 when he first visited a recording studio in London. Prior to becoming a sound mixer, he worked as a boom operator on commercials, documentaries, and short films. His first role as a sound mixer came in 2002 with The Haunted Mansion. Since then, David has worked on films like 22 Jump Street, The Big Short, which he also was featured in as an actor, The Hate U Give, and Underwater. Additionally, he earned a BAFTA nomination for Best Sound in 2017 for his work on Deepwater Horizon.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you about Greyhound and this award season. So congratulations on all of your nominations at the Oscars, BAFTAs, Cinema Audio Society. How did you react when you heard that you received a nomination for best sound?
2: I, I would say that I was probably more shocked than i am right now to find out that david wyman was an actor in the big short (laughs) i had no
0: idea i knew that would come up (laughs)
3: ah the internet
0: does it haunt you to this day
3: um no but there are several crew members that will come up to me and repeat back the you know the one line that i had that that i gave to brad pitt and it it just becomes (laughs) it just becomes a standing joke i love that (laughs) So, all right, so we get back to the
2: question.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot there was
2: a question. This was uh, just an absolutely wonderful surprise. It's kind of a cool way that you guys are interviewing David and I, because he's the first person on the set, as far as sound goes, as he's on set recording the actors. And I'm essentially the last person as the re-recording mixer where I take all the final ingredients and uh, make that thing that you hear in the theaters. Um, so it's kind of fun. Like our stories couldn't be more different. We never, we don't cross paths in our workflow. Mm-hmm. David is there as they're filming. I didn't start the film until almost a year after they stopped filming. So um, it was quite a long process. And it's kind of, it's been really fun to get to know David and get to hear all the crazy tricks and things that he did uh, to, to get um, uh, Greyhound recorded, you know, authentically. And it's been a fun ride. It's been a, um, an amazing, wonderful thing that uh, BAFTA recognized us, and, and then the Academy followed suit. It's been great.
3: I was very humbled to uh, to hear that we'd been Oscar nominated. That was, you know, that is absolutely the pinnacle of, of the awards season. And consequently, you know, it's it's a, it's a great honor. It, no less an honor to be nominated by our peers at the Cinema Audio Society and also BAFTAs. You know, I'm just thankful that Bo was the last person to touch the movie and managed to tie you up all the... <laughs> Bo oh, got us that Oscar nomination. No, I mean, it, no, it's a good team. No, it's it a is. Team. I'm just, I, I'm being uh, appropriately sarcastic. But, no, the nomination and the the immense the immense amount of hard work that we put into this movie, it, it's really been a, a blessing to be nominated to be able to tell a story because so often you know many movies get made and people work exceptionally hard on them and they and they, and you know and they're very difficult to do and, and they come out with an amazing product but yet if they're not in the final if they're not in the final run then the the movie may stand the test of time but but the actual explanation of how it was done really never gets told
0: and i think that was what was fun for me was reading the press notes, looking at other interviews and hearing about what you've done with the film and and in using old equipment, say, and we will get to that in a few Mm -hmm. questions. But um, first off, so we we also briefly mentioned how you got into sound and working in cinema. But what inspired you specifically to these roles and then with this Greyhound project?
2: Uh, Well, you know, I started my career on the sound editing side, so kind of the uh, gathering and creation of sound effects, and I was I was drawn to that as as an intern. I I, I was very very lucky um, where Gloria Borders, who was a supervising sound editor, uh, one of the only women to win an Academy Award for sound uh, for her work on Terminator Two and when i was 18 i got this internship at skywalker i've i had never been to california i'd never been on a movie set i was not around films at all i grew up in a race car garage in new jersey working on my dad's race cars and but i was i was uh i was a musician and i was into technology and so I, i i it was a good fit and i was really only supposed to do a two month long summer internship and i didn't really have a concept of where i was or what i was doing And they gave me, uh, they, they very apologetically gave me what they called grunt work, which was to take these giant three ring binders of notes and make a database out of them. And I started with Terminator 2, the movie. And I started typing in basically all these sound ingredients for what all the sounds were made up of. And I started to get the concept that what you hear isn't always the actual thing. Uh, that, you know, it's not literal. And it's, it's easy to think of that when you think of in terms of like dinosaurs and things that we don't have sound recordings of, but even the most simple things, you know, were, were created out of something else. So a light bulb started to go off. And then I got to the part where I, I'm, I'm hoping that many of your viewers have seen Terminator 2 when I tell the story, um, the bad guy Terminator, and it, it's called the T-1000 and he's made out of liquid metal and he changes shapes and he morphs in the movie. And I got to, I, I'm typing away and I got to the part of the sound of the T-1000 and it was the sound of Alpo dog food sliding out of a can mixed with aerosol cheese whiz. And oh my God. brain exploded when I read that and went, oh, this is just the coolest job on the planet. I have to do this. Wow. Uh, so my two month internship was supposed to come to a close and I got some great advice from some great, some great mentors and I just I stayed, stayed for 10 years and uh, work my way through the sound editorial ranks and then eventually I just naturally started this workflow of not just thinking about the sound effects just really thinking more about the final product and how how sounds move around the room and how sounds balance off of each other and and that was that's kind of what a sound re recording mixer does we we take all of the ingredients and if you play all of them at once, you end up with mud. But if you really start carving through and looking for the story, you can figure out which little piece of sound tells the story. And I, I just gravitated towards that. And I've been a re-recording mixer ever since.
3: Like a lot of people in the sound film industry, you know, we come from musical backgrounds because you know, that's the most accessible Idea of, of, of sound that that a young kid can get. Um, I I started messing around with a with a reel to reel recorder probably when I was 11 or 12. Uh, my neighbour who I was playing playing in an awful band with you know we go around to his house and rehearse and he had a reel to reel and I just started messing around with it, you know. And then like like you said in my bio, by by the time I was about 14, I was actually quite competent. Um, as, as a, a bass player and I was also an orchestral musician. So I had this sort of interesting um, dichotomy of, of being a, a rock musician at the same time being orchestrally trained. So I was, my ears were very trained to listen to multiple sound sources at once, which you have to do in an orchestra. And then I found myself in a recording studio and I was absolutely fascinated. You know, I looked at that, that mixing board and see above. I looked at that mixing board and you know i was just i was in awe i was like look at all these look at all these knobs and dials and all of this stuff and all these lights and and this massive you know two inch 24 track reel to reel and so you know i i wor- I, I just offered my services and I, and I worked for free and i continued to uh record you know with bands i, I played a little session did a little session work and you know that kind of continued to my late teens and, and then i got a job in interning for a film company in wardour street in in england the employment situation in england was very poor at that time and you just basically did whatever you could and this internship sort of pa role came up so i went up and i had my interview and they said you know we'll take you on for six months and which they did and uh, i spent a lot of time with. Uh, the editor who was used to edit in the very old school way on, on the old movieolas and you know just winding the film and he would always charge me with rewinding the rewinding the stock and then he allowed me to start splicing some of the audio together on thirty five millimeter magnetic tape so I started to learn a little bit more about the process and at the same time I would go um, I think it was about three times a week to uh, a class at the at the North London uh, University Polytechnic to understand sound acoustics and dynamics because ultimately I knew I wanted to become a studio recording engineer. Well, that was the ultimate goal until one day the director came up to me and he said, he, there was only three people in the office, the director, the producer, and the, and, the, and the office manager. And the director came up to me and says, you know about sound, right? I said, well, yeah, yeah, I, I do know a little bit. He says, good, <clears throat> learn how this works. And he gave me a microphone machine, a boom pole, and a time code slate. He said, you're coming to Norway tomorrow. Our sound mixer has just gone under with appendicitis and we need somebody right now. So off I went to Norway and we did a documentary on the British Army training for Siberian conditions, which is a myriad of stories all in itself. But that was really my first foray. And then I uh, I, I left the company, but I continued to go back to them and work. Uh, I think I did three or four small little projects after that as just an independent contractor. I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, several years later after having had a 12-year career in finance um, and then went back to the, and got totally burned out and went back to my passion which was sound and you know the, the rest you know is just it's it, it just a move slowly up through the chain and, and getting my chops and, and understanding you know what needs to be done I think that the, the time I spent in the corporate world you know with a suit and tie on with dealing with all these millions and millions of dollars really helped to educate me in, in how best to deal when you when you're talking to people who are above the line when you're dealing with producers when you have to you know tell truth to power if you will I think that re- that really helped me not to be uh, you know not to be nervous or afraid and 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 ultimately it just helps you concentrate on your job which is what you're there to do I'm sorry my dogs are going crazy oh, it's okay. um, <laughs> as far as greyhounds concerned Greyhound was shot in Baton Rouge, and I positioned myself in New Orleans in about 2011, 2012, because in Los Angeles, it just there's such a huge stable of phenomenal mixes in, in Los Angeles, but there wasn't much work for movies. A lot of stuff had gone to Canada, and a lot of stuff was going you know, to the other states that had great tax incentives for production. So I decided to move so that I could maybe be a slightly bigger fish in a, in a smaller pond. And so... Having worked on the movies, some of the movies you named, uh, I was just fortunate enough to get a call to work on Greyhound. And, you know, and I heard it was a Tom Hanks uh, script and Tom Hanks was in it. And, you know, I mean, just, you just you don't say no to that. So I, I wasn't really fully prepared to, I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into, but it's, it shortly became clear.
1: Thank you so much. I feel like now I want to know so much information about like Terminator 2 and the documentary you worked on. So uh, going to Greyhound, again, I think our listeners have probably heard of how sound works in movies, and you've both already touched on this. And I think you've done a really great job kind of describing how your roles differ. But if you could um, talk about how you collaborate as a team, because Best Sound is a team award. So if you could just talk about um, that, how you collaborated on this film specifically.
3: I, I'm gonna start as I'm the first one that presses record. Well, I mean, I think, I think it, may, it, makes, it makes sense. As far as the collaboration is concerned, it, it's an interesting dynamic because invariably, I will not talk to the post-production people while we're in production, unless there is a specific request that may come from editorial for some wild lines, or maybe some some background uh, some background uh, effects they would like. Like for instance, I, you know, I've had requests to go out and record the streetcars of, of New Orleans because they're featured in, in in a piece, and they they wanted something clean and they wanted it to be genuine. Um, you know, I've done I've set microphones up overnight in in a wooded area because we were shooting there, and they wanted the night sounds to accompany the some of the night work we've done and so on and so forth. But that really, that's a a very limited liaison that we have between the two departments. But what is interesting is at all times that I'm recording and I'm setting up what tracks I'm going to record, how I'm going to record them and how the metadata is going to be laid out and, and just how the tracks are going to be laid out. I'm thinking, is somebody in post going to be able to understand what it is that I'm doing? Because ultimately, that's the ultimate goal. I mean, you've got to get the, the tracks cleanly recorded. You have to get the content, but the content is, is no good if it's so mismanaged in the recording process or it's or it's not delineated enough so that the post guys can go in there and actually do something with it or want to do something with it. Because there's many occasions where if it's, if it's not clear, they'll be like, I, forget that. I'm just going to go to the library and get my own shit. And And so that's the way I feel I collaborate with posts, whether I'm whether it's a conversation on person to person or whether it's the conversation of, "Here comes some product that I've recorded, I hope that it it meets the requirements, and I hope you understand the way that I did it.
2: Then once they're done shooting and the editing process begins and the visual effects process begins, that's that's when our sound editorial team comes on and we have uh uh, we had dave mcmoyler who's uh specializes just in taking mr david wyman's tracks and laying them out in an organized way uh so that they'll flow from scene to scene you know there'll be multiple takes we do a lot of things where um if they've shot Five different versions of a scene. Maybe the audio is from the second version, but the visuals from the fifth version. So, you know, there's a lot of mixing and matching that goes on. So it's a big, just just laying out the production dialogue is a huge puzzle piece, and in in Greyhound it was much more complicated because um, um, David had this great idea of recording all of the communications using. Period correct equipment, which he'll get into in a, in a little bit. So that's just the dialogue team. Then th- then there's re-recorded dialogue because maybe there were new ideas later, or the script changed later, or an editorial. Um, they're gonna decide to lose a scene and 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 you know go off script a little bit. So you need a different line of dialogue to just make that make sense. So you know that's another layer of audio. Then now that ADR has to sound like it was recorded on that ship in Baton Rouge. So um, and then there's the sound effects team, which you know in Greyhound and and actually in all movies, um, every sound effect is is um, uh, is separately edited later. Um, you know, you David needs to isolate the dialogue of our actors and try not to hear the things like the birds and the buzzing of the lights and the the whirring of the generators on sets and the fans. You know, he's trying to figure out how to isolate that actor's dialogue. Well, then the sound effects team looks at it completely opposite and says, without the dialogue, what should we be hearing? Well, in the case of Greyhound, we're going to hear all the surf and the wind and the water crashing against the bow. And we're going to hear these sonar pings and there's a torpedo in the water. What does the whirring of the torpedo sound like? What do these guns sound like that haven't been fired since World War II? So they're gonna come up with all these layers, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of layers of sound effects. Uh, And then there's the music. You know, the music has been recorded with complete separation. Every instrument is, is, is recorded and mixed separately. And that way, just like the sound effects, we have ultimate control, we can decide later What do we want to hear? Do we want to hear drums? Do we want to hear violins? Do we only want to hear music and no sound effects? Do we do we need to focus on that line of dialogue? So it's a it ends up being pretty much the most complicated jigsaw puzzle you can think of. But if we've all come together as a team, then you just go on this ride. You're just convinced that you're on a battleship in World War II and the submarines are out to get you. Uh, You know, or in the case of, you know, our other co-nominated movies, you know, you you think you're in the Old West on a wagon or you think you're a jazz musician in New York. You know, you don't you shouldn't really ever really think about what you're hearing. You should just go on the emotional ride. And uh, that's what's been fun about being among these other nominees this year is all the movies are so different. So just so different in tone and shape and content. Yet when you really break it down on every movie, we all do the same same thing. Same thing. It's just every movie; it's a different crew, it's a different workflow. It's a, it's, a, and the movie asks something different of you. But what we did in Greyhound, as far as how to collaborate with our sound team, isn't really going to be that much different than the other nominees that you'll speak to in sound. It's all. It's always very complicated.
0: Yeah, I think there's um, there's so much fluidity. It's not something you initially isolate because it sounds so real. Reading that this might've been done on a ship, but not on the water was mind blowing because that sound just seems so real, looks so real, even though it's CG and created in a studio basically, or, you know, on the water separately. So that's really cool. And I mean, again, congratulations, that's a great feat. So speaking of the equipment now, the film takes place during the Battle of the Atlantic in 1942. So because everything had to be period correct, How did you go about modifying the equipment that initially didn't work um, to make sure that the sound was authentic? And did you feel that this authenticity from this equipment gave you a better sound than something you could digitally remaster or mix later on?
3: I think it's important to it's important to understand why we undertook this journey. So everything had to be period correct because that was the director's vision. He didn't want anything that wasn't period correct in the movie. But also part of the directors um, of Aaron's uh, sort of edict was he wanted all of our actors to behave as if they were in battle on the ocean, and you know to that end we had this giant gimbaled set that, that I've said this before in other interviews. But when you see this the picture go from level to like this, it's not the camera that's moving that way; it's the set that's moving. So you know we had this we had this incredible gimbal that, that actually, it was all computerized and they could mimic different sea states that they programmed into it, I mean, so much to the point that people did get seasick on, on the gimbal. You know, crew members got seasick, some of the actors felt very queasy, and over time uh, people got used to it, but the first couple of days was kind of interesting. So we had this sort of edict, so they, they have to be in battle, they have to feel like they're in battle, and they have to do everything that they would have done if they were in battle. So we went, I went to the USS Kidd to understand, what does that actually mean? And the actors went to the USS Kidd, which is the floating museum in uh, Baton Rouge. It's an identical Fletcher-class um, destroyer to the one that's in the story, the USS Keeling. Uh, and they spent a week there um, with Captain Dale Dye, who is world-renowned as a uh, marine coordinator and military advisor for, for movies. He uh, and he drummed into them everything that they had to do, how they would answer, how they would behave, where they're supposed to go, what their stations were when, when a certain order was was called, whether they were permitted to walk into the pilot house or not, whether they were dismissed or not, and this whole, you know, and then who, how do they communicate with the rest of the with the rest of the ship, and that then landed on me to make that communication portal a reality, and uh, in the USS Kidd. Everything was, you know, like I've said, it's, it's it was like a telephone exchange. You press a button or you pick up a phone. It's directly wired to the person that you want to talk to at the other end. And obviously none of the equipment we had worked in that manner or was even intended to work in that manner. It was just supposed to be set dressing so that it looked period correct. But the director wanted every actor to be on set at all times, whether they were being shot that day or not. Because if there was a dialogue line that they were due to give, it had to be sent back live through this old equipment back to the actor that was on set. And that was absolutely, there was was no negotiation on that. So I had to modify all of this gear to make sure that it did actually work. And a lot of the modifications I undertook were basically replacing a lot of the headphone drivers and making sure that the wiring worked, And then I had to set up all of these unique, discrete wireless and hardwire channels that came to a completely separate mixer so that we could actually mix that audio in time with the script because there's no point in having an open speaker when I'm trying to record a line of dialogue that isn't featured until three lines later because all you're going to get is noise on the set. So we had to be very judicious about how how we organize this. And then some of the last modifications I did is I put microphones in in the guys that wear the helmets, the talkers, you know, that, that run in and out of the ship, put microphones in their in their equipment so I could actually record it. And then I used those microphones to send that audio to the other mixer so that he could then broadcast it to the sonar guy or whoever needed to hear it, so that their place in the script and their timing of their duty was was kept up. And then then we had also uh, a bunch of off-screen um, push-to-talk microphones for the actors who were off-screen they came through speakers they came through phones they came through the earpieces so it was it was a it was a huge deal to to figure out how to, how to make that system work and, and that was the the bulk of the modifications that I did and then of course if you've got all those audio signals and you've hidden the microphones like I did in plain sight, you know, I had them all painted by the paint shop so I could put, dot these microphones close to the equipment so that I could pick up the audio and send it somewhere else. If you've done all of that work, well, why not record it? You know, so that's what we did. Well, I, I made sure that I had a feedback from, from the mixer that was doing all of the, all of the sends and returns. And so I looped, I looped that into my recording station and added that to all of the other dialogue that, you know, that I was tasked to record.
1: Wow, that is so interesting to learn about because when you're watching a film like this, I think like I notice the sound. I think it sounds great, but don't think about all of those little details of how it all came together and how it's period correct. I want to know too just about the water sounds, like how you weren't filming out like on open water. So how did you capture those sounds and were they difficult to mix
2: you know a lot of those came from uh existing recordings uh, i've heard stories about my co-mixer mike Minkler, hanging off the side of a boat <laughs> trying to record <laughs> appropriate water you know and th- that falls into the category of a sound that it, it doesn't have to right. be period correct mm-hmm. water is water it's the, the the sound quality has never changed so it's just about looking at the movie and deciding well what What kind of water do you need? And we, we take our emotional cues from the story. So if you think about it, you know, you, you can cut to a shot of the ship and you can just hear the water kind of chopping along and maybe in the story, you know, the ship is just is just moving forward. There's nothing crazy happening just yet. But then all of a sudden there's a submarine chasing us and we're trying to figure out where they are. We're trying to position the ship exactly in a spot where the torpedo won't take us out. Well, then when you cut to the side of the ship and, and you and you hear the water, now it's crashing and booming and it's in the subwoofer and it's aggressive. Well, if you think about it, the water's not doing anything any different than it just was in the other shot. But emotionally in the story, we've ratcheted up the tension. We've, we've tried to, to kick in the adrenaline a little bit. So in that specific case, we did it with water. We used a little subliminal trick that y- you know, you're not really going to notice. But if you really think in reality, water crashing against the ship is going to sound the same no matter what your perspective. But if you use it as a little fun storytelling tool, then you, you, can, you can just add to the tension.
1: I love that. And I definitely felt that tension throughout this film. And the sound was a huge part of that. So I think we're both curious too. What did you learn from this particular project that you hope to use in future projects?
3: The things that I learned most of all about um, recording the production audio was that planning. A, a lot of planning is is, is your friend, and, and sometimes you don't get that opportunity. Sometimes you know you you're just a, you're, a scene is just kind of thrust on the day and and, and away you go and. And then you rely on your crew to to really help you navigate that as it happens. But having all of that pre-planning and having all of that prep really helped me to um, have a much easier time during the filming of it than I think I would have done without it. And then that's one of those things that you, I really have to thank the producers, you know, f- for allowing me that time because it's all part of the budget. I'm supposed to be on the payroll. From two days prior to production, and they and they push that you know they push that forward three weeks. Well, that, that's a that's a considerable investment that they've made, but I think I hopefully it paid off. So, you know, and I think that also, you know, with a lot of these very complicated movies, I think there's a beginning to be an understanding that there are certain departments who who maybe you know such as the sound department who maybe were not given an early entry into the project for budgetary reasons, but they're realizing that it saves them money in the end and also creates a more fluid project during the production to, to actually bring you know, departments like mine on earlier on. I think a
2: thing that I learned, or, or maybe it's just more of a perspective shift, is uh, Greyhound was nominated in the the first year that the two separate sound awards were combined into one. It used to be sound editing and sound mixing Um, it's been different variations of that in the past and um it's been a it's been a really great unification of the crew because we are two members of a large crew you know i have a co-mixer mike minkler who has been mixing as long as i've been alive you know his son chris minkler worked on the movie as well with richard kidding who was our mix tech we have sound designers Ann shabelli and john title we have will digby and you know, Warren Shaw was their supervising sound editor. I mean, like the the list goes on and on. It's such a huge crew. And there used to just be a line divided right between us. And w- when it came time for recognition, the sound editors were over here and the sound mixers were over there. And because of the way we all work creatively and technically now, the lines have been blurred. So it's really nice that, we can actually just celebrate all this together and rather than say i did this and you did this now we use the word we a lot more i notice and that's that's been a really great perspective shift and that's new this year and i think uh you know what the academy has done to kind of unify us is has made people like you uh, a lot more aware of what we do there's a lot less confusion in what we do now and that's that's been really great
0: that's awesome so just to wrap up here we like to ask every guest something on the pod and it's to see what you're wild for right now so it could be a book it could be a movie tv show anything you could think of
2: i'm wild to get back to a movie theater and have a giant bucket of popcorn in a crowded room and i want when a joke happens i want to hear everybody laugh and i want to laugh along with them and when the boogeyman comes out i want to be shocked and I want to I want to see popcorn flying in the air when everybody's scared and I'm I'm wild about that I, I want to get back to just uh, streaming has been wonderful and thank goodness for the the technology of, of streaming and for the low cost of giant televisions and everything but it just doesn't replace going to the movies and I really am wild to have that back
1: it's a great answer we completely agree <laughs>
0: yeah it was blasting rewatching Greyhound trying to emulate that feeling of a theater. And (laughs) it still doesn't do
3: it. I got
2: to see it. it, I got to see it and hear it in a big theater. And it just makes such a huge difference.
3: You know, I don't normally get wild about anything. (laughs) So British. (laughs) Well, I think it's along the similar lines to what Bo said. I'm actually wild to have a conversation face to face with somebody and see their lips move. (laughs) I am so sick of the lack of fidelity of listening to people talk through masks it just drives me crazy it's it you know because the most important thing about talking to somebody is that you can hear what they're saying i mean it's like come on it's it, it so that for me you know because i spend my life mm-hmm. listening to sound critically you know wherever i am you know which also drives my <laughs> wife crazy because i'll be like you hear that that thing's knocking. I got to stop that thing knocking. She'd be like, "It's eleven o'clock at night. I don't care. I got to stop it knocking right now." You know, and I can hear a I can hear a leaf blower from five blocks away, man. But I really miss I really miss that the fidelity of talking to people face to face without the mask on. And I'm wild to get that back. We all are. Yeah, I agree.
1: <laughs> yeah, very ready to return to theaters, to return to real conversations with people face to face. So thank you both so much for joining us today, even though it was virtual. We're so <laughs> excited for you, both for your nominations and for Greyhound, which is a great film with incredible sound work in it. So thank you again for talking to us today.
2: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us and thank congratulations you. to all the nominees. It's a really fun year. Everybody just did such great work and we're really proud to be part of it.
0: Yeah, thank you again. Good luck later thank today you. at I the Baptist. It's exciting.
3: Indeed. Yeah we'll have to see later today and then tomorrow something
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you again to Bo and David for joining us today you can stream Greyhound now on Apple TV Plus
0: thanks for listening we'll be back next time with another episode in our Oscar Contender series we'll see you soon stay safe and wear your masks
1: thanks everyone see you next time stay safe and wear your masks